navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 37 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. First, a podcast announcement. If you're a regular listener, you'll have no doubt noticed that the podcast has been pretty quiet since the end of the summer. This has been largely due to my workload at Pythian. However, with some changes, I will soon have a lot more time to work on the podcast. So thanks for sticking with us. Uh, look forward to many great new episodes starting at least by the end of January 2020. And we will be back in our normal release schedule, hopefully throughout 2020. We already have a number of great topics and guests planned, and I can't wait to create those episodes and share them with you. So on to today's show. For today, we're going to recap Microsoft Ignite 2019 with Warner Chavez. This is Warner and I's third recap, Ignite recap episode, and I'm really excited to have Warner back on the show. Hey, Warner, how are you doing? Hey, Chris, how's it going? Really excited to really try to distill all these crazy amount of announcements that we get on these big, big shop uh, conferences nowadays, and hopefully give your listeners the bigger gold nuggets from the whole conference. So Werner, just to give the listeners an idea of the number of changes, like as an MVP, I believe you are privy to some NDA style data, but I'm sure you can share, hopefully you can share this with us. Can you give us an idea about the volume of changes this year? Yeah, absolutely. So at this point, all the Ignite announcements have been done because the conference wrapped up last Friday. That's seven days ago from the time that we are recording. So all this info is public now, but just to give people an idea of the amount of things that get announced by all the Microsoft Teams during the Ignite week, the whole compiled list of changes is, and actually it's a 78-page PDF that Microsoft created for MVPs, for example. That's so many different things that obviously, I mean, you and I are just going to cover the things that we find really, really interesting, top-level, you know, strategy type of things, but there's so many changes that uh, if somebody really wants to go over every single one of them, they can just go into the Azure blog and there is a tag called announcements. And if you just click on the announcements tag right now, there's easily, you know, dozens of blog posts from all the different Microsoft teams that were made public last week during Ignite. Great, great. Or as a time saver, you can listen to the rest of this podcast where, as Warner mentioned, we've picked out some of our favorite and what we thought were the most interesting topics. So let's dive right into those topics. Certainly one of the ones that came up in Mr. Nadella's keynote, I heard a lot of ooh and aahing, at least mentally in my mind. Let's talk about Azure Arc. So what is it? So Azure Arc is basically the next step in Microsoft's hybrid cloud strategy. So, so far, you know, it, story uh, up until this point, Microsoft has had two big uh, pillars of their hybrid cloud strategy. The first one was Microsoft was actually the first one to say, we're going to give you an appliance that you can put on-prem and it will basically look like the cloud. It will just be your private cloud, but you'll have the programming surface area of Azure and the portal to manage the resources in this private cloud is going to look like Azure and the APIs are going to look like Azure. So just do everything as if it was Azure, right? That's the Azure stack hardware that they sell and it's still going to continue selling today. And the second pillar of the hybrid cloud strategy was to leverage all the Microsoft products that people already have on-prem and build integrations 
to the cloud, right? So we're talking about easily do uh, disaster recovery, for example, by using site recovery with Windows servers, or, or now it's extended obviously to Linux and because Microsoft is just branching out way farther than Windows at this point. The other one was, for example, with other products like SQL Server, where you can back up to the cloud really easily, where you can have replicas in the cloud really easily, and so on. So this is the, the new pillar, and I think this is a very interesting direction, of course, that Microsoft is going to take from now on, is the new pillar in their hybrid cloud strategy is to bring pieces or bring some of the intelligence of the cloud into your data center through software. Right? So it's not an appliance that they're putting in your data center and it's not taking just integrations from your software on-prem into the cloud. It is making your existing on-prem capabilities full, manage, monitor, and deploy on-prem through Azure and then leverage all of Azure's capabilities on top of that. So for example, right now we have in preview Azure Arc for managing virtual machines and Azure Arc data services. Right. And then what that means is that you, on top of those, you have the Azure monitoring, you have services like Azure Security Center that will be looking over your on-premises VMs and your data services. You have the single pane of glass, obviously, management over your cloud resources and your on-prem resources. And actually, even saying on-prem resources is kind of like a misnomer because technically, there's nothing stopping you from, let's say, deploying VMs in AWS or in Google Cloud or in, in any place and actually enrolling those VMs into Azure Arc, right? And then using Azure Arc as basically your single surface area for all your VMs, regardless of where they are, right? So even in multi-cloud, it works, it could work, right? It basically enrolls the VM and you can control it from and monitor it from, from anywhere through the Arc software, right? And then the Arc software, if you wanna deploy new things, you can do it through the Arc software as well. So you could potentially say, you know, I wanna deploy a new VM in AWS, for example, and do it through an Azure Arc API. Like it's not there yet, but this is what this technology is enabling, right? Okay, so as we covered in the Google Next special, GCP announced Anthos. Is this just Microsoft playing catch up with Google? So. Well, it's really hard to say who, who, who started the project first, but in a way, Anthos high level tries to do the same thing, right? To take some of that cloud intelligence and put it on premises for you. So philosophically, they're going in the same direction, which is not really that surprising, right? That we've talked about this before, you and I, how the major public cloud providers, they, over time, they all turn, tend to converge over similar solutions, right? Just because, you know, they have such a vast amount of clients that eventually they all like, you know, they come in with a similar type of problems and so on, right? The biggest difference right now, like I said, philosophically is a very similar concept. The biggest difference right now is that Anthos is, because obviously Google created Kubernetes and this is perfectly positioned to really drive the innovation on Kubernetes. Anthos is more geared towards automating and managing all that's related to, to Kubernetes right now. At this point, Azure Arc kind of has changed that uh, on its head and the Kubernetes management of Azure Arc is not available right now. Obviously they've announced that it's coming, but Azure Arc has actually started the preview with the VM management state, 
which Anthos doesn't have, right? Probably now that Microsoft is coming out with it, it's just a matter of time until you know Google comes out with it. Obviously, they all there. It's an it's an endless race, right? It's the, the Cold War of cloud technology. AWS has had the outpost concept, which is very similar to Azure Stack, where they sell you actual hardware with some AWS uh, services and APIs on it. They have done a little bit of something similar to what Azure Data Services using Azure Arc is kind of doing with having AWS RDS on VMware, which kind of brings that RDS experience into VMware for managing databases. But it's not a comprehensive. So the problem with AWS's offering is that it's kind of like two very separate things right now. It's not really a comprehensive offering in terms of software. It doesn't have anything like Anthos or Azure Arc right now. But again, it was just a matter of time, probably Amazon, somebody's working on it right now to get on, on this type of direction as well. Because you know, if one of them does it, they all need to you know, provide yeah. something similar. Right? right. I think it's a pretty cool move and pretty smart on all of the cloud providers to get into management of in each other's spaces. That's uh, it's interesting. Keep in mind, for example, the data services, the fact that you can have Azure SQL DB on-prem right now with, you don't have to have a fancy appliance or anything like that. Basically what's gonna happen is you're gonna have to create a Kubernetes cluster and then you basically dedicate this Kubernetes cluster for database workloads. And then you have Azure Arc data services controlling this Kubernetes cluster. And then you can use high level, you will just use the same experience you have on the portal to create databases, to back them up, to do restores and so on. And under the covers, Azure Arc is just controlling, orchestrating, deploying different containers in the in the Kubernetes cluster, right? And then that opens up something very interesting, which is Microsoft's advantage of all the software they have on-prem. It's already on the, on the web, uh, in the documents, there's Keep in mind the services are in preview, but the documents are, are already up there. And they already say that they are planning to provide a licensing mobility for clients that have SQL Server on-premises to simply shift those licenses into running Azure SQL DB on-premises through Azure Arc, right? So, you know, they have their position in a way where they can easily sweeten the pot to get people to adopt these services, right? Right. That's uh, that's really cool. On the topic of Azure Stack, you know, I, I think that's a very cool technology. Let's talk about the announcements around Azure Stack from Ignite. There were several. Why don't you walk us through? Yeah. So for Azure Stack, they've done a bit of changes in the naming. So I'm, I'm going to go through that first so that we're all talking about the same things. And then we can dive into what they actually are. So previously, uh, what we had was that Azure Stack Appliance. And like I mentioned in just the, the previous topic about Azure Arc, the Stack Appliance was, you know, a pre-configured hardware appliance that Microsoft would uh, ship to your data center through some of their hardware vendors like HP or Hitachi. And you just program against this Azure stack using all the Azure APIs. It looks like Azure and so on. So that appliance is now gonna be called the Azure Stack Hub, okay? On top of the Azure Stack Hub, now they're also adding another appliance that is not just compute. The Azure Stack Hub is just compute. Now they are also gonna have what they call the Azure Stack hyper-converged solution. So it's compute and storage bundled 
together, right? And then we also have previously what they called the data box edge is now just called the Azure Stack Edge, which is a blade pretty much that you can put on premises that also has some intelligence built into it to mostly to run data collection, to do stream analytics, to do IoT data collection, or to do network data transfer to, to the cloud, right? Uh, especially the data box previously is just you know a way to have some data on-prem and then move it to the cloud as well. So now they have a whole portfolio of stack, let's call it stack hardware, right? Uh, all this different hardware that brings on-premises the uh, capabilities of Azure. And all of it is designed, obviously, to be able to be disconnected from the cloud and still function, at least temporarily. And then once it's reconnected to the cloud, it just integrates back into the services, right? So for example, if you're doing site recovery through the Azure Stack Hub, it, it'll disconnect. Your VMs are not going to go down because it can't talk to Azure anymore or anything like that, right? I mean, we've talked about this before in the podcast, right? This is very, very interesting for disconnected scenarios, remote compute scenarios, where, you know, maybe you're taking this blade over somewhere else, or you're bringing the appliance over in some remote facility, you work disconnected for a while, then people can bring it back eventually connected and get all the data synced or get all their files backed up once it has communication to Azure again. Something that is very cool as well is that these stack devices, they are now developing in very small form factors and what is called the rugged series, which I think it might have been fueled by, you know, thinking of uh, a military operations even because it's a, a very small form factor and can fit in a backpack. It's got all the shockers for getting dropped or, or vibrations so that it doesn't affect the actual device, it is battery powered, right? So you can run core services there, mostly in terms of, you know, signals, uh, data collection, and then eventually when you connect it back to the cloud, it'll communicate back all the changes to your services in the cloud, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a very interesting thing, right? The, the, the mobility here of a small form factor and the ruggedness, it opens for a lot of use cases where you basically take a little piece of of the cloud with you. Right? Yeah, I think that the remote use cases have been, or the opportunities for remote use cases have been largely underplayed. If you think about, you know, maybe firefighters working, you know, in the middle of nowhere fighting, you know, large forest fires or logging camps or gold mining or, or any mining for that matter, you know, there are IoT opportunities and then leveraging the cloud. Like there's a lot of, probably a lot of untapped data and IoT opportunities for those use cases or oil uh, drilling platforms, things like that. So that's why I get so excited about Azure Stack. I think it's a, a mm -hmm. differentiator for Azure. Microsoft actually does, in their announcement, they did highlight that they think there's quite a market here and a lot of innovation that could happen in terms of disaster zones, like you just mentioned, or large-scale rescue operations and stuff like that. So And it's definitely interesting, too. Uh, the device uh, has also satellite connectivity. So as long as you can get aligned to the sky, technically, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can't transmit gigs of data, but you could still have some sort of at least small connection enough to, you know, and let's say in a, in a sense of rescue operation or disaster zone where people might just be marking points of interest or something like that is not really that data intensive. What's important is to keep everybody coordinated, right? 
Yep. So, so yeah, a lot of a lot of interesting things. I think we're gonna see over time as these products get more adoption, we'll see more and more interesting solutions. Yeah, and hopefully, actually, you mentioned satellite connectivity. I don't know if you're familiar with the devices, but I have uh, a satellite device, uh, Garmin InReach Explorer, which I use when I'm motorcycling alone in very remote areas. I'll tell you, satellite communication is not cheap. So I really hope that they also drive down the price. That would be pretty sweet for the rest of us. Let's move on to the other announcement that I think we were both pretty jazzed about and on the topic of rebranding. Azure SQL Data Warehouse has a new name and a bunch of new features. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah, so this it was a big announcement. I think this, to me, the two biggest announcements of Ignite so far, it's Azure Arc, because it just tells us so much about the direction of Microsoft and the hybrid cloud. You know, it's, it's going to be a big front of this of this cloud warfare and then the next one is this it's azure synapse analytics for for several reasons first it is the evolution of azure sql data warehouse and the features that is going to bring in is going to take it to feature parity with one thing that comes up a lot and is google bigquery being able to do on-demand workloads and azure sql data warehouse didn't have that capability so this is the number one thing in terms of how it compares to other cloud solutions, the on-demand query capabilities. And then second is that Synapse is really targeted to being a one-stop, really tightly integrated shop for all analytics workloads, right? So, I mean, you, you and I have worked on these type of things before where people end up using a bunch of different services to put together their enterprise data platform, right? So you use some flavor of data warehouse, regardless if let's say you're using BigQuery or Redshift or Azure SQL Data Warehouse, and then you use some other thing for big data, right? Like you use Spark or you use Databricks, and then that operates over a different storage, right? It operates over usually either S3 or Google Cloud Storage or Azure Blob Storage and so on. And there's always a little bit of hoops that you jump through to integrate both things and then get it finally in some some sort of visualization for users to play with and so on, right? Mm -hmm. Synapse introduces the concept of the uh, Synapse workspace, which just basically integrates everything. It integrates, if you need to develop ETL, it integrates it into your workspace. If you, when you develop your data warehouse, the data warehouse lives inside this workspace as well. If you need to add a big data Spark capabilities, it's inside the workspace too. And they can talk to each other, which is very important, right? It's not that it's impossible to do it today, but it just requires extra work. Synapse basically takes all that extra work away. You can create a table using Spark, for example, and then that automatically registers that table in the catalog of the workspace, and you can transparently go on Data Warehouse and just query that table as if it was a table inside the Data Warehouse, even though it's a table that actually is just logical and it's distributed over possibly thousands of files in your data lake storage, right? But it's all... The complexity of that is it's, it's, it's all abstracted away from you. To you, it just looks like an extra table in your data warehouse, right? So that that super tight integration, I think, is going to make it so that when people say, oh, I need to architect my new enterprise data platform, there's not going to be that much that you really need to architect in terms of selecting services. You can just say like, okay, well, we're going to go with Synapse Analytics, and that's it. 
right? Because it's gonna be able to, it already integrates with data lake storage. It already gonna have Spark built into it. It's already gonna have the SQL data warehouse, which is you know more than proven 25 plus years of query optimization code in SQL Server and the MPP engine and so on, right? It's just gonna be a one-stop shop. Don't need to think too much about it. If you need to put you know, your your new EDP in the cloud, you're just gonna go with Synapse and that's it. And I forgot even more integrations. For example, what else did they announced? ML obviously is gonna be integrated into it. The streaming is gonna be integrated into it and so on, right? So with the new service, how are the users, how are they gonna access the data? Is it just like working with a typical data warehouse with typical SQL? Did they, did Microsoft continue with, UQ, uh, what is it, UQL or the SQL data warehouse language they invented? How has it worked with? So basically the, the USQL that you mentioned, it was a service called Data Lake Analytics that Microsoft has basically deprecated at this point. I think they, they understood that there was not really a much of a point in continuing to develop this in parallel, right? It was kind of like they're, they were reinventing T-SQL for big data, right? But now what's happened is they've kind of gone in this other way where they're saying, no, why would we reinvent T-SQL? Like people know T-SQL so well, and it's like been in the market for so long. What we're doing is bringing big data into T-SQL, right? And you can right. do that even on-prem with Polybase now. Right, And now they're extending this into the cloud where they're going to say, well, just define your tables with Spark. And then we, under the covers, have this catalog of tables so that you write T-SQL and you're going into a table that actually exists only with Spark, but it doesn't matter. To you, you just wrote a T-SQL and you don't really know where the data is, which I think is the really the key pieces here, mm -hmm. right? Is that people don't need to worry where this data is. They don't need to worry if it's, you know, uh, 30 node Spark cluster that needs to do a group by over a petabyte of data. They, they just run a, a query and that's it, right? And because of this also, it means that all the client tools, they just think they're connecting to a SQL database, right? Sure. They don't care, they don't know, right? That, like I said, the complexity of everything that's under the covers, I can hook up Excel to it and just throw a pivot table over it. And Excel doesn't know. And the user doesn't know either. And, and honestly, like the user doesn't care, right? It's our right. responsibility to make it as easy as possible for the user to extract all this value from the data. And they don't care if it runs on a super fancy cluster, if it runs, right? If it runs on columnar storage, like that's tough for you and I to like geek over. But the <laughs> yeah. user just cares to have the data that they need to do their job in a timely manner and with decent performance, right? On the topic of performance, was this, was there a demonstration of performance for, for Synapse? Yeah, yeah, they, absolutely there was. And they, they were throwing shots at a big query and at Redshift as well. I think there's really big differences against both of them. Like obviously right now, Synapse is going to bring the on-demand query model that, that's been really popular with BigQuery. So that's going to be available. And they're also still going to keep the provision resources. So if you do want to provision your own permanent resources, you can do that as well. And uh, the fact that uh, there's a big difference here is that Microsoft really has kept a lot of options for performance tuning if you have to performance tune, right? BigQuery is great to getting a really fast time to insights because it's just you just kind of like load data. There's very little 
actual performance tuning control that you have over it, right? Whereas uh, DW has given people, if they want to, lots of access into controlling the indexing and controlling the format and controlling the compression and all these other things, right? So yeah, they, they definitely said that if you know you have somebody that knows what they're doing, they claim that you can squeeze a lot more performance for less money than all their competitors. But obviously, I mean, it's, it's a Microsoft conference, so they're going to bring all the stats that benefit them. But I do think that it's it's definitely a very, very strong competitor against any of the other cloud providers. I mean, I already thought that already, but with the, what they're doing here with Synapse, it just brings the value proposition way higher with the fact that you can mix on demand with the provision resources and the super tight integration with the big data piece. You know, it just makes it like so easy to like not think about it. Everything's there. It's just one stop place. Right. 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 <laughs> yeah. And, and I noticed after the keynote, I don't know if it was a day or two or maybe a few more, but all of a sudden I'm getting AWS Redshift is, uh, and you know, five times, three times, whatever faster ads all over my LinkedIn. So I wonder if it's uh, in response to some of the shots over the bow from Microsoft. Oh, yeah, night. of course. <laughs> well, I think, I think AWS reInvent is coming soon too. So they'll, I'm sure they'll come up with something else. I, I think at the end of the day, what people need to realize is that, and I know that performance is is very important for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. But I've had this conversation with other colleagues at Pythian over the years, especially the ones that are obsessed about squeezing every single last drop of performance around their databases or the data warehouses. And it's the fact that for the vast majority of people, any of these big solutions that have been proven in the market, whereas Redshift, BigQuery, or Azure SQL Data Warehouse, they will perform, quote, good enough for you, you know? They might not be the fastest between the three of them. It'll likely not be the slowest either, but if you have decent people running them, they will perform good enough for you, right? Performance is, you know, something that we bring up all the time and, and it, marketing loves to bring it up as part of like a, a big driving force and whatnot. But any of these platforms can perform well, you know. The biggest difference is you have to look is into what are your developers used to? What are the tools that they like to use? How can these environments make them more productive you know these are the more like they're not quantitative measures they're more qualitative measures that will really impact the quality and the speed and the, really the outcome of your enterprise data platform project and satisfying your stakeholders right like i guarantee you with decent people and with the amount of resources you can get in the cloud right now you will tick the performance checkbox. But all the other things are, are, you know, they're harder to measure too, but they can really make or break an analytics project. Hmm. Okay. So on the topic of performance and data, let's talk about the uh, SQL Server 2019 release. Yeah, so SQL 2019, uh, I guess uh, we can do a roundup here of other other data updates. SQL 2019, basically just people to know that it is now available, generally available. It is out there in the market, fully supported by Microsoft. And yeah, I mean, we're not going to deep dive into SQL 2019 because there's a lot that we could talk about it. But uh, a lot of innovation there in terms of integrating SQL with big data as well. A lot of innovation in the intelligent query processing 
which is more innovations into basically making your queries run faster without you having to do anything and a lot of stuff coming in in terms of security. Right now we have always encrypted with secure enclaves. We have data auditing and classification and stuff like that. So like I said, it's not really, we can't dive deep dive into this episode into all that's coming in 2019, SQL 2019, but just so people know it is right there right now. And if you were planning to upgrade or migrate to SQL 2017, and for some reason your project has gotten delayed and you still haven't done it, I would recommend you just go to 2019 at mm-hmm. this point. Yeah, probably makes sense. We'll do a deep dive as a separate episode into 2019. You know, it's a product that's near and dear to both Warner and I. Another, speaking of which, another one that Warner brings up often, Cosmos DB has some new features. Cosmos DB has some new features that I think are, well, I thought they were pretty amazing. I know I'm a big fan of the of the service, but but I'll tell people why I think they're amazing. So first one is that there is auto scaling now on Cosmos DB, which is something that people have been asking for for a long time. And if you look at the competitive landscape, the auto scaling story of some of the other services in other cloud providers is not as strong as the story that. Cosmos is going to have now. Basically, what you do is you just set an upper cap of request units, which is the performance unit of Cosmos DB, and that's it. Hmm. It will provision. You only have to pay for a baseline of 10% of your cap. So Microsoft will always keep a baseline of 10% of what you say that you want it to auto-scale. But then that rest of that 90% is going to fluctuate based on your workload. And something that is very interesting is that let's say uh, you have a certain base amount of storage, right? So as you consume more data, I mean, obviously Cosmos DB is a distributed database, right? So as you as you consume more data, physically what's happening is under the covers, Cosmos is provisioning more compute nodes and splitting the data into more machines, right? That's how you can scale uh, linearly over, you know, petabytes of, of data if necessary. But then the way this works is, let, let's say I started with 50 gigs and I said, oh, well, I want 50 gigs and a, an upper limit of 1,000 RUs, right? So then what's going to happen is that once you go over the 50 gigs, you're going to go into basically a new level, a new step on the ladder of auto scaling without having to do anything so that as your actual data grows, you don't have to constantly be moving the upper limit manually, right? It'll happen automatically for you, keeping the same ratio of RUs to data that you initially set it to. So that's, I think that's really, really neat. So once you set it up once, if your data is growing, then you just, you don't have to set it again, right? You don't have to keep switching up that auto scaling knob to say, well, now I want it up to more are used or more are used. Oh, my data is a little bit bigger now. Oh, I have to bump it up again kind of thing, right? It's just like, you can set it and then you can let the service auto manage that for you right. as well to keep pushing your limit, right? Right. So if your app or whatnot goes viral and, you know, gets a significant bump overnight of downloads and uses, you know, you're not getting up to tweak it. That's good. Yeah. And then the other thing that I, I thought was really, really cool, and this is a big difference from any of the other cloud competitors in terms of the ease of use is that now Cosmos DB is gonna have a one-click analytical storage enabler option. 
So basically, all your data is coming into Cosmos DB. Cosmos is, a, is not an analytical engine by design, right? It's an OLTP engine by design. But through like a one-click, yeah, I want to have analytical storage too. Under the covers, all the data coming in through Cosmos DB is going to be converted into Parquet format by Microsoft and then placed into your data lake storage. And then, of course, this is going to be integrated with Azure Synapse, and you will be able to use the Azure, the Spark part of Azure Synapse to do analytical queries over your Cosmos DB data. All, like I said, all fully integrated. It's the one-click enable kind of thing. So imagine you don't have to develop ETL. There's no ETL to develop, right? Wow. It's just, it, it automatically goes straight into data lake storage, automatically gets enrolled into your Synapse catalog. That means you can start writing SQL queries to the data that you have on Cosmos DB for analytical queries, you know, right away. Actually, they, I, I was reading about this a, a few days ago and I was like, oh man, they're, they're really pushing the boundaries. Like I said, the, the shots are being fired quite hard. Any update that you make to the transactional storage of Cosmos is guaranteed to be visible to the analytical storage within 30 seconds, right? So you can do, I mean, for most people, when we say 30 seconds, that's real time. Yeah. Right? yeah. The vast majority of people that I've spoken to when we do conversations to clients about real time, the definition of real time obviously is, is very uh, flexible, but for most people under a minute is real time, you know? Mm -hmm. 30 seconds, you'll be able to do analytical queries to the actual changes that are happening in your transactional Cosmos DB storage. So I, I, I was really surprised by this, the fact that they were able to enable such low latency from moving into the transactional storage, the analytical storage, 30 seconds that you'll be able to see it. So That's, yeah, it's, cool. uh, it's pretty neat. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Oh, and keep in mind, Cosmos is multi-master global, right? So, and this applies as well to the analytical storage. So if you have, your Cosmos DB multi-master that goes from East US to West US to Frankfurt, and they all will replicate that data in the multi-master way, and their analytical storage will have it as well. Cool. So you could be running analytical queries from your East US region that is already reading data that is coming through transactions that are happening at Frankfurt all enabled, again, it's just people people don't understand the amount of effort that it takes to build this if you were trying to build this on your own, right? You just have to say multi-master, you enable it in the three places, then you say analytical storage, and then that afternoon you're able to go on Synapse and start throwing analytical queries, add your data that's in Frankfurt with multi-master delay is minimum guarantee of five minutes. So with five minute latency, you'll be running analytical queries to transactions happening in Frankfurt without deploying any hardware, without configuring anything. You just have to click twice and that's it, right? <laughs> that's it's, cool. It's really like, you know, it's, 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 something, it's, it's something else. Yeah, that is some incredible engineering underneath, that's for sure. Let's talk about SQL DB serverless and Postgres going hyperscale. Yeah, so well, SQL DB serverless and Postgres hyperscale, they are now available in general availability. SQL DB serverless is basically for not 24-7 type of workloads where 
you don't really want to pay if nobody's querying. It's it's slower because it's not provision resources. But if you know it's something that is not commonly queried, then you can just run in serverless mode. PostgreSQL Hyperscale is an extension of PostgreSQL from a, an acquisition that Microsoft did a few months ago, where basically it allows your PostgreSQL database to be transparently sharded based on a key and a scaled out over multiple nodes, right? So that's pretty neat as well. Yeah, yeah. Sharding, sharding can be difficult if you do it manually. So it's cool that it does it on, on your behalf. Also, SQL DB Edge. Now, this one I, I had a question about myself because we've always had super light versions of SQL Server. I can't remember the names, but for fairly small uh, devices. Talk to me about SQL DB Edge and, and why is it significant? Well, I think because it's, it's basically, you're right that it was usually, there were all other flavors of SQL Server and Microsoft tried to put them on smaller devices, but they were all tied into the Windows ecosystem and whatever Microsoft was doing back in the day, right? So what was the name of the Windows? You know, for a while they had a Windows OS that was mobile was it CE? and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So so that's, I think that is the biggest difference really is that Azure SQL DB is it's the same concept like you just mentioned, it is the same concept, but is the current iteration of that concept built in a way that I think is more scalable and will likely gather more industry interest, right? It's uh, basically a very lightweight Linux container that can run not only on Intel, but it can also run on ARM-powered devices, right? So it opens the gate to way more devices than it was ever opened by just having some little SQL server that could run in whatever Microsoft Windows mobile version they had back in the day, right? This is just a run-of-the-mill Linux container with a very light footprint that can run on any x64 or ARM device, right? So obviously Microsoft is going to use it themselves first on some of these Azure stack devices that we talked about before, but I'm sure they'll get some device partners enrolled, right? And get this role in there. So I think that's the biggest difference is that it really, the way that it's created now with using an open source operating system and adopting uh, another chipset as well with ARM, it'll likely have more adoption than the other attempts of doing this had in the past. Right, right. With a small window. Good, good point. And what about Azure ML? There's a new designer and some lifecycle management capabilities. Yes, yes. yes. So there's this whole, I guess what we can call it, like this driving strategy inside Microsoft, kind of like how Synapse is taking, you know, all these things that people were doing separately for their enterprise data platforms and putting it all into the Synapse workspace, right? So Microsoft is doing similar thing now here, but with ML, right? So they are creating a new studio web experience that will take the whole life cycle of, of you know, doing machine learning and put it all in one place for data scientists and other machine learning practitioners, data engineers, and actually people that operationalize machine learning as well, all in one place, right? So you'll be able to design if you want to do drag and drop design, to be able to do a code if you just want to write some Python yourself. They'll be integrated with a notebook experience. The the new automated ML they have, where you basically you just go through like a wizard somewhat and describe what you're trying to achieve and where the source data sets are and Microsoft, their engine will actually help you pick the algorithms and the parameters to start 
tweaking and playing with your ML model and so on. So this is the automated ML. All of them are going to be in one place. You'll be able to browse your data sets, your experiments, all of this in, in one designer experience, right? So that itself is, is pretty neat. But really, where I think that this whole thing is really valuable is that I find that Microsoft at least over the last few years, has really taken a lot of effort into understanding that ML needs to get out of just the realm of experimentation. And one big barrier is to put it into the realm of production, real production systems, right? So, and we've seen this before with other, uh, some of our clients where they, they do some ML and they think it's really cool and they see some results, but then it's really hard to operationalize it. And once they operationalize it, it's really hard to maintain, right? So inside this, all these new capabilities in Azure ML is a lot of support now for uh, registries of data sets and models so that people can discover other people's work in your organization. There's version control, so you can version control data sets, you can version control the models, so you know exactly like, you know, what data set was used to generate what model, right? So you don't lose track of that. And if you need to roll back, you can roll back as well. Or if you think, well, I know that this model does this way with this data set, but what if I change the algorithm? But to make the comparison fair, I have to use the same data set, right? So all this version control allows you to do that as well. Security, like I mentioned before, people don't really think about, oh, ML, whatever, data scientists and whatnot. But, and I think we talked about this before in the podcast, the type of decisions that some of these ML systems take are just getting more and more important, right? From approving loans to to doing uh, AI-based decisions of uh, healthcare, even things like that, right? Where somebody that shouldn't have allowed access to an ML system can actually do uh, a lot of harm if they really wanted to, and kind of like in a sneaky way, right? If they were to update a model that decides things in a different way or scores things in a different way, right? Yeah. So there's there's full audit trail capabilities as well to know like what time, who published the model, who did this experiment, and so on, right? That's, yeah. There's really big control logs now as well integrated to it. Something else that, again, is really neat, it speaks about how they th- they're thinking about this way of, of really how you operationalize ML. They have now this feature called controlled rollout, which I thought was really, really cool. So I'll tell you what it does. Is let's say you have a stream of people that you're evaluating, right, for some sort of ML capability. And you have a, you know, a certain model that you're using right now. So you can introduce a new model into your API and say, well, I want 50% of the traffic to go into my new model, right? And then as the data is coming in, you can see and compare how your old model was scoring these people and how it's scoring the new model is scoring them now because the new model is now receiving 50% of the traffic. And you can see that live there in production. And whenever you have the confidence that, yeah, this looks good, then you can switch to 100% of the traffic to be on the new model, right? And then you take out the old one and you basically never had an outage and you were able to look before you completely switched it to see if it made sense or not to switch it. That is really cool. 
Yeah. And, and I, I can really just going back to the other thing you said about security, I can just imagine, you know, the damage that could be caused by malicious introduction of bias into decision making. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It could really affect a model. And it's probably very, very hard to find. So I think this is both, both, both things are, are incredible. Now, going a little bit back in time, there were a number of IS related updates. Why don't we start talking with the new machine series? Yeah, so there's a couple of new machine families. Uh, basically, big difference now is uh, they are introducing a lot more machines under AMD. So they're giving consumers a choice there. It's not just going to be Intel. It's a lot more of the Epic family of AMD processors and really beefy machines as well. And keep in mind something else that is a big difference in the, the machine series updates is that Microsoft is now starting to enable the second generation VMs on their data center, which will theoretically will allow them for provisioning VMs that have as much as 12 terabytes of RAM for whoever needs such monster VM. That is, I can't even think of the use case. So that's going to be pretty interesting as well, obviously, if you have the money to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. And what about the, I know you were really excited about some of the new GPU series. Yeah, so what what excites me about this, what they're doing with GPUs right now is because every time that you think about something that I feel like you can only really do it in the cloud is where where I think a lot of value comes out of, right? Because if you say like, oh, we run SQL Server in the cloud on a VM, it's like, well, yeah, I can run SQL Server on a VM right now here in my basement, right? It's not something that is like, oh, it's the power of the cloud, right? So these, what they're doing now with this GPU VMs, I really think it showcases the power of the cloud, right? So nowadays GPUs are so powerful. When you, let's say you're a designer that creates CAD designs and you need powerful 3D modeling and uh, space rendering abilities and whatnot, but you might not need a full GPU and, and the GPU market moves so fast that you'll probably be outdated in a couple of years as well. And you might have to provision these. But what if you have a team of designers, right? So now all these GPU machines allow for flexible GPU resource allocation. So what that means is that you can say, well, I want this machine that has this model of GPU, but only give me uh, 25% of the GPU power because today I'm not doing really intense rendering. Let's say I'm just going to be doing some editing or whatnot, right? And then the day that I'm going to render or the day that I'm going to prepare uh, the animation so that we can send it to our clients, that day I allocate 100% of the GPU and then I run it and then you can go back down to just consuming a, a fraction of the GPU as well. And then you only not get get the cost savings, obviously, of being able to be flexible on your GPU resource allocation. But over time, whenever you know the GPU models inevitably get replaced by newer ones, you don't have any hardware that you need to refresh, right? Like your people were just working on regular laptops and they were doing all their rendering or their GPU work in the cloud, right? And that way you just don't have to worry about replacing really expensive GPU-powered physical machines for your employees, right? Right. That is really cool. Certainly, and no doubt, the other cloud providers will catch up on that one for sure. So Microsoft announced something called an Azure Spot VM. What is a Azure Spot VM? 
Yeah, so spot spot VMs have existed for a while in other cloud providers. There's actually a lot of people mentioned before, like uh, AWS has had spot VMs for years at this point, right? Where it's basically you say, well, I'm willing to pay up to this amount for a particular VM because I have this workload that is not really time sensitive. So I just rather run it really cheap whenever I get a VM that frees up. And then it helps the cloud provider use basically get some money out of their unused capacity, right? Because it's better to get something than than nothing if you already have all this capacity provision, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so AWS has had this before for a while, and Azure is going to finally have it as well, where you can just say, you know, I, I need this VM. If it goes, it has a market price range. I'm willing to pay like about, you know, certain amount of money to get it, but it's not really urgent. So whenever one frees up, you know, let me know, provision it automatically and whatnot. And you can say, you know, when I want it to, provi- when it is provisioned, just trigger this job, for example, and the, this is the code that needs to run in it kind of thing, right? So that's that's uh, really a, a feature that is just bringing parity to something that some of the other cloud providers have been doing for a while. You know, I'm, I'm really curious about that strategy. I, I have a hard time, you know, I've always worked with critical production systems. So I really have a hard time, you know, kind of imagining the type of scenario and the type of workload definitely uh, that that would use that sort of when we can technology so that's that's something we should dive into sometime in a future podcast episode and so you also mentioned Azure Bastion was something that came up in a Cloudscape episode some time back. Why don't you talk about what that is? Sure. So Azure Bastion is the service that Microsoft provides so that you can do really tight control privilege access management to systems. Right, So Windows VMs or Linux VMs that you have provisioned in the cloud, you can say that they're only allowed to be accessed through Azure Bastion and then control all the access to these machines through Azure Bastion using just the regular Azure AD authentication and the role-based access control that comes with Azure as well. On top of that, of course, Azure Bastion provides them full audit trail capabilities of who is accessing these machines. And they have enabled at this point even a video recording as well of what people are doing when they're working with these machines controlled by Azure Bastion. So now it is GA. Keep in mind, there's something that I was uh, talking with some of our colleagues the last few days. Think about where this is going now that we have Azure Arc, right? Technically, and I mean, I'm sure this is just a matter of time, how long before you can say, well, all these production machines are enrolled into Azure Arc and are now controlled access through Azure Bastion, and that's it, right? And suddenly you have this really tight privilege access management control system over your entire production VM state with just a few key services, right? Okay, yeah, that, that's pretty powerful. One of the other comments that you made as we were prepping for the show was about Microsoft's continued focus on kind of industry or vertical specific solutions. Why don't you expand on kind of bring to the audience what you were saying? Yeah, so this is something that I, I've kind of been noticing that they come up with things every now and then that they just custom or really target develop for a particular vertical, like you said, a particular industry. And it's becoming a little bit of a strategy as well. I saw one of these come out in Ignite and I thought it was pretty interesting what they were doing. So I figured we bring it up in the podcast. So it's called Azure 
farm beats, but think not so much about farm beats itself specifically, but again, what this what this tells us in terms of strategy, right? So Azure Farm Beats is a Microsoft solution that they are, are trying to sell, basically, to people that run large-scale farming. And what they sell really is just the consumption of the resources in Azure to run the solution. They're not selling you the software itself. Right. So what they do is they have they have data from satellite imagery. They have weather data. They have ML models built in. It's all bundled into this solution. You can deploy it, configure it for your farm. And then all you have to do is pay for the Azure consumption. Right. They're not charging you for the software itself. They're just charging you for the Azure consumption. And then you take advantage of this, pretty much this pre-built solution that will cover a lot of the different things that, uh, you know, like a large farm scale management requires, right? But think about what this means for other industries too, right? They'll probably could do a manufacturing thing. They could probably do a marketing one. They could probably do a retail one. They could probably do this for gaming. They could do it for digital media, right? There's so many things where they could just take the same strategy of building a solution that covers a lot of the common problems because obviously Microsoft has thousands of customers in every single vertical. And then they just give it to you. That's it. There's no, the, the only catch is that the solution runs in Azure because all they care about is that you're consuming Azure. Right. right. So I think this is something very interesting. Obviously, as time goes on, where the value of the software itself is going to keep being replaced more by, you know, just trying to drive consumption instead of trying you to get to pay some sort of upfront fee for, for the software itself. Yeah. Pay, yeah. Pay as you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So switching gears a little bit. So largely this is a data-based podcast and I have very little interest in things like Microsoft's Office 365, but this one key up that I thought was really cool, especially along the idea of security. Why don't you explain insider risk management? Yeah, so this again, it's a little bit out of our wheelhouse because there's so many updates about the 365 family in Ignite, by the way, all about Office and Microsoft licensing management, device management, it's stuff that you and I really don't cover because we're all about uh, the data and the infrastructure and, and, and you know higher level solutions and stuff like that. But as I was going through the list, I just thought this one was particularly very interesting. And I mean, it is it is data related at the end of the day, right? So insider risk management, what it does, and this might freak some people out, some other people might think it's cool or not. What it does is that if you have your organization enrolled into all these different Microsoft 365 services, then basically your employees or your collaborators are, are using they're creating Microsoft documents, right? They're on Office 365. They are using Microsoft Storage. They're using OneDrive, for example. They are probably collaborating using Teams and so on. And this insider risk management basically is an insider risk scoring engine. Somebody that might be doing something nasty inside your organization. So it looks at the behavior of people, how they're copying files, what type of things they're talking about, and tries to give you a heads up that somebody might be doing something they're not supposed to or might be sharing information with somebody they're not supposed to and so on, right? And all this is AI ML powered, 
by basically analyzing the behavior of the people under the 365 subscription with the intent of trying to catch nasty insider activity. Because at the end of the day, if you look at the vast majority of hacks, very little actually is done through a very technically complex method. Most hacks are insider leaks or social engineering that happens through an insider that had access to the information, Mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The vast majority of hacks are not what we see on the movies where, you know, there's this particular exploit and they somehow connect, you know, the truck that's outside to the internal network and they run something super fancy. Like, that's not how most happen. Right. Right? Most of them just are insiders that for some reason or another decide to leak information or insiders that get socially engineered into accidentally leaking information. Right. 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 And so, I, yeah, and I think that that's incredible and I, something that will only only grow. So the other not in our wheelhouse, but very interesting announcement was the Chrome based Edge browser. I, I thought it was so I, I just I tried Microsoft Edge many, many times. I wanted to get with it. But, you know, the fact that I just couldn't sort my bookmarks alphabetically in bulk and it just had so many deficiencies and, and, and it rendered Gmail horribly. There were a bunch of reasons not to use it. But I grabbed a copy of this one and I liked it. I made it my default for a bit. I had to give it up because the Evernote Web Clipper plugin is not available for it yet. And I'm a big note taker and Web Clipper kind of person. But I thought it was, I think it's a fantastic browser. I'm excited about it. What do you think about it, Warner? Well, first of all, I think it's it's a smart move, right? Because, I mean, they have the telemetry. They were probably figuring out that, you know, not a lot of people were using Edge for different reasons. And if there's some particular Edge-only code or whatever, like, they were not going to get much faster anywhere. Moving to a Chrome-based browser just gives them compatibility over way more websites at this point, right? And it just proves, again, the strategy, whereas, like, Microsoft is just, nowadays, it's just like, you know what, why are we reinventing the wheel kind of thing? Yeah, who, who cares if it wasn't, you know, originated inside Microsoft? Like, you know, yeah. whatever. We'll yeah. just take it, right, if they can. Same with, like, Kubernetes, you know? Like, back in the day, I could see where instead of adopting Kubernetes, Balmer would have just come out with, Windows Container Orchestrator Enterprise or something like that. You know what I mean? Instead of just being like, yeah, this is the direction the industry is going in. It's open source. Let's adopt it instead of creating our own flavor of it. Right. Yeah. That's the new. That's the new Microsoft. Right? Yeah. Well, it's the the influence of a of a software engineer versus I'm I'm not really sure what to call Mr. Balmer, but definitely just different different sales uh, exec. Basically. Yeah. I don't want to be unfair because he did come up with the idea of, of Azure or at least okayed it. But uh, you can tell by the difference in leadership by the fact that it was Windows Azure, right? Mm-hmm. So this is this totally different strategy now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's working out really well, right? It's working out fantastically, some people would say. Yeah, I would say that. 
All right. Well, th- thank you for walking us through those changes. I know this is, you know, we're at uh, about time here and there's obviously many, many more, which will be very interesting to other people. So, you know, do head over to the Azure blog and have a look around. That's all the time we have for today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is by writing us a short, honest review somewhere like iTunes or telling a friend where to find us. We also love feedback. You can email me at datascapepodcast at gmail.com. And we're also looking for guests and new ideas. So not just feedback on how we've done, but stuff you'd like to see. And if I use your idea, I will send you Datascape swag. Thanks all and have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.